If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. There are many supposedly haunted places in this world, with the most well-known being the ubiquitous haunted houses with their various wraiths, spirits, and poltergeists. Yet these are far from the only locations that can become infused with the paranormal. One very interesting and bizarre case of a haunted place is not even a building at all, but rather a Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. Ship, which in its life was a legend and which in death has held the ghosts of its tumultuous past close. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com, and be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. I post a new episode every day of the week. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… Things continually appear and disappear in Grandma's creepy house. Helen Bailey went on a walk with her dog one afternoon and was never seen alive again. They were called the West Memphis Three, and they were tried and convicted of the murder of three boys in 1994. But a campaign for their release succeeded, and they walked out of prison in 2011. But was justice served? In haunted locations aren't always buildings or even necessarily on the ground. The legendary ship Queen Mary is swimming with the paranormal. We begin with her story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness.
surely one of the most luxurious and world-famous cruise ships ever launched was the HMS Queen Mary. Born at the John Brown Shipyard in Clyde, Scotland in 1930, the Depression halted construction of the ambitious ship through the early 30s, but when it was finally launched in 1936, it was considered one of the most crowning achievements of shipbuilding the world had ever seen. Larger and faster than even the Titanic, the HMS Queen Mary melded classic elegance with the most cutting-edge technology of the time, and it would go on to hold the speed record for crossing the Atlantic from 1938 to 1952. It was one of the largest and fastest ships that has ever existed, and was the epitome of luxury and style for those who wished to cross the vast sea. At the time, you could not get more opulent or travel in better comfort or style than aboard the HMS Queen Mary, and for the first three years of its life, the colossal 1,000-foot-long megaship ferried passengers across the Atlantic in unparalleled comfort and luxury, including some of the richest, most famous, and most powerful people of the era. In 1939, the specter of World War II began to loom over Europe, and the HMS Queen Mary would be repurposed and refitted to transport troops for the war effort. Repainted a dull gray color, the ship became known as the Gray Ghost and played an active part in carrying large numbers of troops as it outran enemy subs. With its carrying capacity also modified for this purpose, Indeed, by the end of the war, the HMS Queen Mary would transport around 800,000 troops and set the record for the most people ever put on a floating vessel, at one point carrying a staggering 16,683 people at one time. After its illustrious career as a military transport vessel, the HMS Queen Mary reverted back to a luxury passenger liner after the war a job it would continue to do until the 1960s, when the popularity of passenger liners began to wane and the ship was eventually decommissioned in 1967, after which it was moored at Long Beach, California, and turned into a floating museum and hotel. And thus ended the illustrious career of the great HMS Queen Mary, with a total of 1,001 transatlantic voyages under its belt and various military accolades its mark upon history assured. However, the story of this legendary vessel did not end there, and in the decades since being permanently docked, the HMS Queen Mary has accrued quite a sinister and eerie reputation for being intensely haunted. The tales of hauntings and paranormal phenomena aboard the HMS Queen Mary are almost as famous as her colorful history. In a way, it makes sense that there should be some ghostly occurrences here, as there are at least 50 recorded deaths aboard the vessel during its lifetime, and the ship was involved in a fatal accident during World War II when it struck the vessel Curacoa, resulting in 338 deaths. Perhaps some of these dead from the war have decided to stick around, and indeed ghostly wails and frantic banging are said to be heard on occasion from the hull and the bow area that had struck the Curacoa in the tragedy. Another one of these would certainly be the specter that reportedly inhabits the engine room. Here there are frequent reports of pipes banging, as well as sudden temperature drops, floating lights, 
the engine room door inexplicably heating up, and anomalous smoke, all said to be the doing of a 17-year-old sailor named John Henry, who died here in a fire during wartime. The massive, abandoned boiler room incidentally has at least one other spirit in the form of the ghost of a fireman named John Petter, who was crushed by an emergency door here in 1966 and appears as a ghostly figure in blue overalls wandering the area around the door known as Door 13. There are certainly numerous other ghosts and phantoms on the vessel not connected to the war, and there are many areas of the ship that seem to be magnets for the paranormal. One intensely haunted area of the ship is the first and second-class pool areas. The first-class swimming pool, once a lavish space of shiny tile and opulent decor, now sits empty and unused. Yet there are often reported to be the sounds of splashing or of wet footprints, even though there has long been no water in the pool. The specters of several women in period swimsuits can also be seen walking or lounging about here before blinking out of existence or phasing through walls out of sight. These particular entities seem to show no awareness whatsoever of being observed or of others around them, and they largely go about their business as if they are still on the luxury cruise. Both of the swimming pools also supposedly harbor the spirits of several children who can be heard laughing, giggling, or running around. The most famous of these is a spirit called Jackie, which inhabits the second-class pool and is said to be the girl who drowned during the luxury liner's heyday. Jackie purportedly carries with her a teddy bear, often calls out for her mother, and will allegedly sometimes whistle or hum Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Eerily, she is also known to hum or whistle back songs that visitors sing, with some ghost hunters doing this in an effort to draw her out. A companion of Jackie's is the ghost of a girl called Sarah, who is known as being rather mischievous and prone to acting up, sometimes tugging at clothing, tapping, pushing, or even slapping guests. Even spookier still is a ghost said to prowl the pool area that leaves behind the smell of cigarettes and is known for growling ominously, leading to the spirit's nickname, Grumpy. The pool's changing rooms have their own strange phenomena as well. A woman is said to have been murdered here, possibly raped as well, which has led to an oppressive sense of dread that can suddenly overwhelm visitors. And there is also sort of a vortex that is said to swirl here through which various spirits travel to and from the ship. Many of the ship's other areas are haunted as well. Some of the staterooms are known to be intensely haunted, in particular stateroom B340, which is so plagued with paranormal activity, such as lights turning on and off, the phone ringing with no one on the line, faucets turning on by themselves, moving furniture, sheets ripped off the beds, and numerous anomalous noises that the room is no longer rented out at all. Stateroom B-474 also has a spirit in the form of a little girl named Dana who is said to have been murdered there along with her family. A shadowy figure of a man wearing a 1930s-style suit is also often seen wandering about the staterooms on some inscrutable errand.
The ship's playroom and nursery is home to disembodied infant crying and the pattering of unseen little feet. The Queen's salon and first-class lounge has the specter of a pretty woman dressed in flowing white vintage dress who can be seen dancing alone in the corner, and another mysterious woman in white is sometimes seen sitting at the front desk late at night. The lobby area is also supposedly prowled by a sinister spirit wearing a yellow fedora and apparently possessing rotten teeth. Other assorted areas of the ship that are haunted include the captain's cabin, the helm, and the Winston Churchill's suite, which are often permeated by the smell of phantom cigar smoke, supposedly from the former captain, Treasure Jones, who loved cigars. Then there is the ship's bar, where the ghost of a man in 1930s clothing with slicked back hair and a top hat will sit down next to unsuspecting patrons and even talk to them, only to vanish right before their eyes or walk through the walls towards the men's restroom. The promenade is also supposedly haunted by several spirits. One is said to be that of a man named William Eric Stark, who in life made the mistake of drinking the contents of a bottle of cleaning fluid thinking it was gin. His health would rapidly deteriorate until he died in a fit of coughing and choking, and this choking and gagging is a distinct attribute of his ghost as well. Stark can apparently be seen as a spectral figure around the promenade, hacking and coughing, even in death. Also on the promenade is the ghost of a boy five or six years of age who is called Daniel. This particular ghost is always seen wearing blue clothing and can be spotted wandering about the promenade and the observation bar, often just standing in the dark staring at people. Other assorted phenomena throughout the ship include shadow figures lurking about or looming behind visitors, the potent feeling of being watched, moving or levitating objects, ghost lights, banging, knocking, disembodied voices, footsteps, electrical malfunctions, drastic temperature fluctuations, various unexplained odors, and many, many others to the point that the HMS Queen Mary holds a reputation as being one of the most intensely haunted places there is. This reputation has made it a haven for ghost hunters and paranormal investigators, including TV shows such as Ghost Hunters and Most Haunted, and it is a popular destination for psychics. Indeed, the famous late psychic named Peter James spent a good amount of time here and was instrumental in uncovering and identifying many of the lost souls wandering the corridors of this vessel, and there are estimated to be hundreds of individual spirits clinging to this place, eternally anchored to this one vessel. Why should so many spirits find themselves tethered to this one particular place? After all, there are many retired ships in the world with pasts perhaps even more peppered with death and tragedy than the HMS Queen Mary. How is it that this place has managed to draw about it so many ghosts, and why are they so hesitant to let go of it? Are they individual, free-roaming entities, or are they just some sort of imprint of the past, as an image to a photograph? Or is this just spooky tales an attempt to play up these scary stories for tourist dollars? It is a mystery as to exactly why certain places should become haunted 
and attain such spooky reputations as the lairs of ghosts. But whatever the reason is, the HMS Queen Mary is certainly ranks up there as one of the more intriguing, looming there over the waves as it always has. Its ghosts, whether real or imagined, lingering about as they perhaps always will. I've seen quite a few dead people, and strange things happen to me, but here's a story about my grandmother's house. My grandparents got married in 1939 and moved into a terrace house in a Kent town near Chatham Dockyard in the UK. My grand lived in this house until 1997. As a child, I would have really vivid nightmares, no more so than when I stayed with my grandparents. The house was very old, over 150 years. It wasn't that creepy, but as I got older, strange things started to happen after my mom and my granddad died. I'd see a black mist behind me in a mirror. I'd have strong feelings that my mom or my grandfather were standing behind me. My grandfather smoked a very pungent tobacco. Five years after his death, the area where his chair once sat used to suddenly fill with the smell of tobacco and dissipate very soon afterwards. My gran didn't smoke. These ghosts were friendly, but there was one ghost that was not. A medium friend of my gran told her there was a Victorian woman in the house and was pacing the room in agitation, trying to keep calm, but was wringing her hands. Objects would disappear and reappear in odd places. I got into the habit of demanding that they were brought back, and they always were, but not where you left them. At night, if you stayed up late, the room would grow cold, and you felt this feeling of agitation and worry. My gran told me she woke up one night and saw a woman in a long, black dress walking across the room. When my gran died in 1997, things got much worse. I would have the most vivid, horrible nightmares. I'd wake up to find the window in the room opened. I asked my then-boyfriend to move into the house with me. He worked nights and was often in the house alone in the daytime. I never said anything about ghosts, but he told me that he could smell tobacco in the house, which made me go cold. One night we came home from a night out and found a poster I had on the wall in another bedroom, which had migrated to our bedroom and was squarely in the center of our bed. At night, the atmosphere in the house was thick and unwelcoming. We were packing up to leave the house and we were going out. We had a silly argument as my boyfriend was late home and we were going to be late, but he wanted a bath. I went upstairs to get a towel. The bathroom was downstairs off the kitchen. As I came towards the kitchen, I swore I saw a man that wasn't my boyfriend at the sink. All the hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. Then he was gone. We moved out not long after that. One of the nicest stories about my grandfather's ghost happened on the day of his funeral. My granddad was much older than my gran and had been married before in the 1920s. He wore a ring his first wife gave him all his life. My gran told me that in the future, that's your ring. Well, on the day of the funeral, my gran wore my granddad's ring even though it was too big for her. When she went back to the house, she was distraught because she had lost the ring. We pulled the house apart after the wake, but we couldn't find it. My gran said out loud, please, Oswald, bring the ring back. 
I went upstairs to tidy up where we had been pulling everything out. All the contents of my grand's dressing table were on the floor, moved during the search. In the center of the empty dressing table was the gold ring. There's no way we would have missed it. That ring is now my wedding ring. Up next, author Helen Bailey went on a walk with her dog one afternoon and was never seen alive again. Plus, they were called the West Memphis Three and they were tried and convicted of the murder of three boys in 1994. But a campaign for their release succeeded and they walked out of prison in 2011. Was justice served? These stories when Weird Darkness Returns. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, the greatly anticipated sequel to his novel Inside the Mirrors. Previously available only to Weird Darkness patrons, Into Darkness is now available worldwide. A creature part of the darkness before God created the heavens and earth has awakened. It had slumbered, hibernating from the light. Now it is hungry and wanting to feed. Bobby, a local kid, and the police chief have gone missing. Everyone in the small town of Standard is turning to former Chicago cop Rob Aletto to find them. But as he starts his search, more people disappear. Rob is quickly overwhelmed. The night itself seems to come alive, taking these people. Aletto must find out why and discover a way to stop it before the entire town slips into darkness. Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample of the audiobook on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck, my pillows sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. In February 2011, Helen Bailey and her husband John Sinfield took a much-needed vacation to Barbados. It was the perfect time to escape the dreary skies of a London winter. Sinfield, the founder of a licensing rights company and Bailey, a successful author, were sitting beachside in their lounge chairs when Sinfield got up to take a dip in the ocean. Shortly after beginning his swim, though, Sinfield disappeared among the waves. A riptide pulled him down, drowning him. Bailey found herself alone for the first time in decades. A prolific writer, Bailey had long expressed herself on the printed page. 
She wrote the successful young adult series Electra Brown, which was beloved by readers for its humorous depictions of teenage life. But her writing took a more serious tone in a website she created to discuss her grief after Sinfield's death, called Planet Grief. Bailey hoped that Planet Grief would serve as a place of comfort and healing for others who had experienced loss. Bailey herself had been feeling more optimistic in the years after her husband's death. She had met someone through a support group on Facebook a few months after John's passing. She was a widow. He was a widower. They connected and exchanged letters and emails. She referred to him as the Gorgeous Gray-Haired Widower, or GGHW, on her website. His real name was Ian Stewart. The couple became engaged sometime in early 2016. Bailey moved into a sprawling home with Stewart in Royston, the first time she had lived away from London. She had written that she missed London but was looking forward to her future with Stewart. Stewart's two sons also lived in their home, as did Bailey's beloved dachshund, Boris. Boris was famous in his own right. An animated version of the dog appeared on the cover of Bailey's published book about grief and healing, When Bad Things Happen in Good Bikinis, Life After Death, and a Dog Called Boris. On April 11, 2016, Bailey took Boris for a walk around the Royston neighborhood, as she did nearly every day. The pair were never seen alive again. Three days later, Stewart reported her missing, telling police that Bailey failed to return home from her walk with the dog. He also showed police a note, allegedly written by Bailey, which said that she was going to take time away at a family home. For weeks, the search for Helen Bailey continued. Then, in July of 2016, the police made a grisly discovery in a septic tank beneath the garage of the Royston home. Bailey and Boris's remains. Ian Stewart was immediately arrested and charged with murder. Those close to Bailey have since said that Stewart purposefully preyed on her. The woman who had enjoyed a great success with her young adult novels had amassed quite a fortune, around four million pounds, in addition to a luxurious home. Stewart used Planet Grief as a way into Bailey's life and began love-bombing her almost immediately to make his target utterly reliant on him. Their similar circumstances allowed Stewart a way in, and he soon used that to convince Bailey to change her will and leave all of her belongings to him. Once Bailey had changed her will, Stewart began plotting a way to get rid of her. He started slipping Bailey sleeping pills months prior to her murder. Bailey had noticed a change in her demeanor and considered seeking medical help. On the morning of her death, she had googled, why do I keep falling asleep? She had also, heartbreakingly, googled a wedding location that she had been looking into. It has been speculated that Stewart was aware that Bailey was starting to question what was happening to her and that going to a doctor would blow his cover, and so Stewart decided to act. On the day that Bailey was killed, Stewart visited a doctor for a post-op appointment following a minor surgery he had done earlier. Although this appointment was likely meant to give Stewart an alibi for the day of Bailey's disappearance, the police timeline shows that he killed his wife well before his appointment. Stewart spoke on Bailey's behalf at a meeting with a lawyer regarding the selling of one of Bailey's homes that very same day. 
Stewart told the couple's lawyer that Bailey was absent because she was unwell. Stewart went to his older son's bowling game that day, and the two ate Chinese in their home afterwards. Bailey's body by that point was already in the tank beneath the home. For nearly three months, Stewart acted the part of a concerned husband-to-be. Bailey had disappeared without explanation. He made flyers with pictures of both Boris and Bailey and confided in police that he thought someone may have kidnapped his fiancée. On July 15th, three months after Bailey disappeared, police received a search warrant for the grounds of Bailey and Stewart's home. The tip traced back to comments made by a neighbor who told police about a septic tank hidden below her neighbor's garage. There, authorities discovered the remains of Bailey and Boris. The next day, Stewart was charged with murder. Stewart was tried in January of 2017. He was found guilty of killing Helen Bailey on February 22, 2017, almost exactly six years after John Sinfield died. Stewart was sentenced to life in prison. He will not be eligible for parole until he is at least 90 years old. Few people who have watched the documentary film Paradise Lost remain unconvinced by its central tenet that the young men, imprisoned in 1994 for the murder of three boys at Robin Hood Hills in West Memphis, Arkansas, were wrongly convicted. The film makes a persuasive case that the accused men, Damian Eccles, J.C. Miskelly, and Jason Baldwin, suffered a miscarriage of justice victims of a prejudiced police and legal system that discriminated against them because they were weird kids who dressed in black and liked heavy metal music. It's an all-too-familiar story, and one those in the audience for true crime documentaries are predisposed to believe. Many similar films have documented sad, true stories of minorities, misfits, and outsiders being railroaded and wrongly convicted of heinous crimes by small-minded, conservative legal systems. The film's thesis follows a familiar pattern. Damien Eccles and his friends were scary and strange teenagers who liked heavy metal music and even indulged in satanic rituals in the woods. When three young boys are murdered and dumped, hogtied and naked in local woodlands, provincial-minded police quickly focused with scant evidence on the teenagers as the likely perpetrators. The small-minded local community turned on the accused. False testimony and confessions were suborned by the police, and with the recent satanic panic scare still in people's minds, prosecutors distorted facts and unfairly used the boys' lifestyle and demeanor against them at the trial. But what if the prejudice in this case was the other way around? What if the real distortions and manipulations were committed by the film rather than the prosecution? Is it possible that there was a genuine case against these three men, one that is a lot stronger than depicted in the film Paradise Lost? Could liberal audiences, rightly outraged by similar miscarriages, have rushed to their own judgments? This possibility has been almost entirely overlooked by the extraordinary juggernaut created by Paradise Lost. 
From the original 1996 documentary by directors Joe Berling and Bruce Sanofsky, its sequels, several other films, and the advocacy of major Hollywood figures such as Johnny Depp and Peter Jackson, a huge innocence campaign was spawned that eventually led to the men's release in 2011. Although never actually exonerated of the crime, so great was the negative publicity generated against the Arkansas justice system that an unusual and little-used legal technicality was negotiated between the defense team and the state, and the three men were finally released after serving 18 years of their sentences. It's not hard to see why the ordeal of the West Memphis Three has had such a strong impact on the public consciousness, and why the three men's cases have continued to be promoted by high-profile figures in the film and music world such as Henry Rollins, the band Metallica, and director Peter Jackson, who donated $10 million to their defense. The story, fixed in the public mind by Paradise Lost and its sequels, of troubled teenagers persecuted because they were different, is one millions of people around the world can identify and sympathize with. Not least of those is the creative industries. But with so much myth, propaganda, and rumor having been spread since the three men were jailed in 1994, it's easy to forget exactly why they were convicted in the first place. The films and the Innocence campaigners have done such a good job of editing out many of the inconvenient facts and evidence that many are unaware that a solid case exists against the men at all. Could it be those original detectives and prosecutors, most of whom maintain the men are guilty, were right after all? To understand why Hollywood may have made a grave mistake in their advocacy of the West Memphis Three, we must travel back to a nightmare day in 1993 when this terrible story begins. Police in the small Arkansas city of West Memphis were first alerted that something was wrong on the night of May 5, 1993. The parents of three local boys had reported their sons, eight-year-old Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, missing. A small search was conducted in the surrounding area, but no trace of the children was found. Concern for the boys deepened after they had still not been found by the following morning, and a major search was launched by the police and Crittenden County Search and Rescue at 8 a.m. A police helicopter swept the whole area, and 50 searchers, including many local volunteers, focused on an area of woods in West Memphis called Robin Hood Hills. That afternoon, the grimmest of discoveries was made. Parole officer Steve Jones found a black tennis shoe near to where the woods bordered the Blue Beacon car wash. In a nearby ditch, Sergeant Mike Allen then discovered the naked body of a boy, his hands tied together with shoelaces. Following the course of the ditch, the bound bodies of two more boys were soon found. The boys' clothes were found scattered around the creek. Some items had been pushed into the mud with sticks, and the trousers were inside out. One of the boys, later identified as Chris Byers, was covered in lacerations and had the skin from his penis and scrotum removed. The autopsies found that Chris Byers had died from knife wounds and Steve Branch and Michael Moore from drowning. Luminol tests revealed enough blood on the ground to indicate they were probably killed where they were found. A lack of tracks or drag marks also indicated the boys had been attacked and killed in the woods. 
The fact that there were three victims and they were tied up with different types of knots pointed to multiple killers. Although only eight years old, it was difficult to see how one man could have subdued and murdered the three boys without at least one of them escaping and calling for help. With stories that satanic ceremonies were occurring in the woods already circulating in the local community, the idea there was some ritual element in the murders quickly spread. Steve Jones and another juvenile parole officer, Jerry Driver, immediately suspected a troubled local 18-year-old man named Damian Eccles. Eccles' history of psychiatric problems and strange, violent behavior singled him out to Driver. With the word evil tattooed across his knuckles, his black clothes and self-confessed interest in the occult, the teenager also outraged Driver's conservative, insular mindset. The day after the murders, Driver made his suspicions about Eccles known to the West Memphis police. The Innocence Campaign has made legitimate criticisms about the blinkered attitude of people like Steve Jones and Jerry Driver. Much of their aversion to Eccles was based on petty prejudice rather than hard facts. However, once the police were made aware of the teenager, a very real case quickly developed against him and won nothing to do with how he was dressed. Police first interviewed Damian Eccles on May 7th and would talk to him several times in the next few days. Eccles told them that he was at home the night of the murders and spent much of the evening talking on the phone with several of his girlfriends. Aside from his alibi, some of Eccles' statements in these interviews are strange and alarming enough to naturally attract the suspicion of detectives. Whilst Eccles denied any knowledge of the murders, he appeared to have some startling insights into the killers. West Memphis police detective Brian Ridge's notes state, when asked about how he thought the person felt that had done the homicides, he stated that the person probably felt good about what he had done and that he felt good that he had the power to do what he had done. The teenager also had something to say about the killer's methodology. Damien stated that he figured that the killer knew the kids, went into the woods, and even asked them to come out to the woods. He stated that the boys were not big, not smart, and they would have been easy to control. He also felt the killer would not have been worried about the boys screaming due to it being in the woods and close to the expressway. Innocence advocates have dismissed these statements by Eccles as simply a cocky, intelligent teenager being smart with local cops, whom he probably regarded as his intellectual inferior. Whilst this is clearly a possibility, with three children having just been murdered, no detective could reasonably make the same determination. Eccles' interviews in the days following the murders also brought another name to the attention of the police a 16-year-old friend of his named Jason Baldwin. Unlike Eccles, nothing Baldwin told the detectives stood out as particularly unusual. It was a phone call received by the police on May 9th that really turned Eccles into a major suspect. Narlene Hollingsworth, the aunt of Damien's girlfriend, Dominitier, called the West Memphis police to report a sighting of Eccles near the murder scene on the night of the killings. According to Narlene and three other members of her family, they saw Eccles at around 9.30 p.m. walking in an area very close to where the bodies were later found. He was also covered in mud. It is one of Paradise Lost's most egregious distortions that it casts the police's focus on Eccles as unwarranted. 
The West Memphis police's honesty and competence have been repeatedly questioned over the years. But by May 10th, they had genuine reason to believe that Eccles was both lying to them about his alibi and was near the murder scene at the time the boys died. Knowing this, no police force in the country could regard him as anything other than a major suspect. The case against Eccles developed further when the name of another local teenager, 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly, came to the police's attention. Miss Kelly's role in the story would perhaps become the most controversial and debated aspect of the entire case, and pivotal to the arguments of both the innocent and guilty camps. Miss Kelly was a local dropout who worked odd jobs, had a low IQ, and a history of petty crime and violence. Police first talked to him as a witness on June 3rd. Sensationally, within hours, Miss Kelly would confess to the entire crime, stating that he, Damian Eccles, and Jason Baldwin had beaten and murdered the boys. On the basis of the confession, Miss Kelly and the other two suspects were arrested and charged with the murders. Miss Kelly's statements would form one of the cornerstones of the case against the three men. Because of this, Paradise Lost and the Innocence Campaign also focus on Miss Kelly and his confessions, arguing they were coerced by the police. According to Paradise Lost, Miss Kelly was a vulnerable minor, a teenager with a very low IQ and learning difficulties who was interrogated for 12 hours on his own, without his parents or legal representation. Under intense pressure from detectives, Miss Kelly falsely confessed to a crime he and his two friends did not commit. This false confession narrative is central to the entire Innocence Campaign, but it is seriously misrepresented in the films. In actual fact, Jesse Miss Kelly confessed multiple times, often in private, to his own defense lawyers and away from police pressure. Similarly misleading is the way the film treats Miss Kelly's alleged intellectual dysfunction and the circumstances surrounding his police interviews. Even when Paradise Lost makes a valid point, it is often undermined by its one-sided treatment of the facts and omission of proper context to what's happening. Because he was accusing the other two suspects, Miss Kelly was tried separately from Eccles and Baldwin. Despite the shortcomings of the prosecution case alleged by the Innocence Campaign, two separate juries in 1994 were sufficiently convinced to convict the three men. Eccles was sentenced to death, and Baldwin and Miss Kelly were sentenced to life imprisonment. None of the films make any attempt to interview the jury members to try and understand why they thought the men were guilty, settling instead to insinuate that they were gullible and prejudiced for doing so. The first Paradise Lost film was released in 1996, building on a campaign that was developing on the then-emerging Internet. Sequels released in 2000 and 2011 follow supporters of the men and their attempts to get the verdicts overturned. West of Memphis, produced by Peter Jackson and Damian Eccles himself, was released in 2012, covering much the same ground as Paradise Lost. The film concludes with the deal made between prosecutors and the defense team that saw the men released in 2011. The rarely used Alford plea allowed the men to be released on the condition that they admit the state had enough evidence to convict them should the case go to another trial. Essentially, it allowed Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly to protest their innocence for the cameras 
whilst officially pleading guilty to the crime. These later films have attracted criticisms for making allegations against some of the murdered boy's fathers. Suspicion is cast variously upon both John Mark Byers and Terry Hobbs, often using the same kind of scant evidence and innuendo the filmmakers accuse the prosecution of using. The case of the West Memphis Three would probably be unknown outside of Arkansas if not for these films, and especially the high-profile support Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly have received from the film and music industry. Their advocacy catapulted the relatively obscure case into an international cause celeb, cited as a notorious miscarriage of justice in countless newspaper stories, magazine articles, books, and television programs. West Memphis itself was widely depicted as a rural backwater with a corrupt and incompetent police and courts. Little attention was paid to dissenting voices. Award-winning journalist Billy Sinclair began writing about crime and justice whilst serving a 40-year prison sentence for murder in the 1970s. Now released, Sinclair believes the West Memphis Three are guilty. I concluded and am still convinced that they were guilty, he said. My gut feeling is that if a person is truly innocent who has spent 18 years fighting for his innocence, he's not going to go and plead guilty to killing three eight-year-old boys unless he's guilty. Are skeptics like Sinclair right? Were the West Memphis Three guilty of the murders of the children at Robin Hood Hills in 1993? The murders were thought to have occurred sometime between 6.30 p.m. when the boys were last seen and 8 p.m. Although glossed over in Paradise Lost, none of the men have been able to produce a convincing alibi for this time. In his May 10th interview, Eccles states that he was home all night, talking to various girls on the phone. However, when police found and interviewed the four girls named in Eccles' statement, they all contradicted his account. 13-year-old Jennifer Bearden did talk to Damien a few times that day, but it was not during the time frame of the murder. In her statement, she says she called Eccles at around 8 p.m., but his grandmother answered and said that he was out. Two other girls, Heather Cleat and Holly George, also talked to Eccles by phone that day, but were unable to contact him between about 9 and 10.30 p.m. The next day, Holly later told Heather that Damien said that he had been out walking around at the time. Even more damaging for Eccles is the testimony of the Hollingsworth family. Narlene Hollingsworth, along with three members of her family, were driving in the area of Robin Hood Hills at around 9.30 p.m. when they saw Eccles with his girlfriend Dominique Tier walking along a road just 200 yards from where the bodies were found. According to the family, Eccles was covered in mud. All four of the Hollingworth family knew Eccles well, and their sighting was and remains a major problem for the Innocence Campaign. Not only does it place Damien Eccles near the murder site at around the time the boys were killed, it contradicts his own alibi. The fact the murdered boys were found dumped in a muddy ditch also casts the observation that Eccles was covered in mud in a further suspicious light. Eccles has continued to lie about his alibi in his many media interviews. In 2010, he told CNN, at the time the police say the murders took place, I was actually on the phone with three different people. The problem was my attorneys never called them to the stand. Clearly, if Eccles' lawyers had evidence that he was elsewhere when the crimes occurred, then they would have used it. That they don't call the girls 
is because they would have contradicted their client's alibi, an inconvenient fact that both Damien Eccles and the Paradise Lost films are keen we don't know. There's also no reason to believe the defense team wouldn't have had access to the phone records for that night. Tellingly, since Eccles would probably have been acquitted if the phone alibi story was true, they don't use them. Jason Baldwin's alibi proved too flimsy and inconsistent to use at trial. His lawyers found it so difficult to piece together any coherent timeline of Jason's whereabouts on the day that they took the unusual course of not presenting any alibi witnesses at all. One of the defense team lawyers, Paul Ford, explained this decision in 2008. I concluded from my efforts that I did not find successfully what I was looking for, for the purposes of establishing an alibi that I felt would not unravel on me, which I believe is much more detrimental than not presenting one at all. Jesse Miss Kelly's alibi initially looked stronger. His defense attorneys found several people who were willing to testify that Miss Kelly was attending a wrestling game in Dias at the time of the murders. The wrestling story features prominently in Paradise Lost and West of Memphis, but the films leave out some important context. In actual fact, the alibi largely crumbled under cross-examination, as the witnesses were inconsistent and contradicted each other. The prosecution team also produced a receipt which suggested the trip had probably occurred in April, before the murders. Tellingly, Miss Kelly never mentions the wrestling trip in any of his police statements. Is it really credible that none of the three accused men are able to provide a good alibi for the most infamous night in West Memphis history? Real innocent people are obviously somewhere else, and they leave a trace behind. If the men really are not guilty, then they are incredibly unlucky to be unable to convincingly account for their true whereabouts. The films, and latterly Eccles himself, have done a good job in portraying the then 18-year-old as an outsider who was persecuted in a small Christian community because he was a goth who had an interest in the occult. They concede he was suffering from angst and mild depression, but these are perfectly normal teenage problems. What the Innocence Campaign studiously avoids is the fact that Eccles was actually mentally ill at the time of the murders, a self-confessed psychopath with a long history of serious psychiatric problems. Eccles had been hospitalized for mental health issues twice the previous year. His behavior, often so extreme, his own parents had become frightened of him. They told Eccles' caseworker that they were frightened of him and what he can do not only to them but to other children that reside in the home. During the sentencing phase of the trial, when it was apparent that Eccles may face the death penalty, his defense team prepared a large dossier known as Exhibit 500, detailing his psychiatric history over the previous few years. This was a standard procedure as it could be used as a mitigating factor in order to reduce a death sentence to life imprisonment. This document had unintended consequences when it was made public due to the catalog of aberrant behavior it detailed. Although downplayed by his advocates, the dossier details the deeply troubled mind of a young man teetering on the edge of psychopathy, who was prone to violence and suffering delusions of grandeur. The report recounts Eccles' frequent homicidal and suicidal thoughts, how he was obsessed with Satanism and the occult, believed he was possessed by a spirit called Rosie, and even believed he was God. 
Echel's frequent aggression was also a major concern. Several expulsion reports from Echel's schools detail his routine threats and violence against his classmates. He attacked many of his friends and even tried to gouge out the eye of one boy. Two incidents are documented of him setting fire to his classroom. The aggression extended to his family members. Whilst detained at Craighead County Juvenile Detention Center in 1992, the hospital's psychological assessment reported that Eccles was presently in detention in Jonesboro, picked up for violation of probation, threatened to slit parents' throat and eat them alive. One recurring theme from the Exhibit 500 is Eccles' fixation with drinking blood. Several incidents are documented of him licking blood off other patients at the hospital and trying to suck blood from people's necks. One particularly disturbing episode is described in his psychological evaluation. One of the kids at the detention hall cut his wrists. Damien grabbed his arm and began to suck the blood, smeared it over his body, and said he's a devil-worshipping vampire. Eccles himself felt he was so mentally ill that he could not work. At the time of the murders, he had applied for and was receiving Social Security disability benefits for his psychiatric issues, describing himself on the application as homicidal, suicidal, manic depression, schizophrenia, sociopathic. More lurid allegations that Eccles murdered and dismembered a dog are difficult to verify and hotly contested between both the pro and anti camps. However, there's already enough in Exhibit 500 to conclude Eccles was a dangerous individual who exhibited enough red flags to believe he was at least capable of doing something as terrible as the murders he was charged with. Another recurring feature of Eccles' behavior is his compulsive lying. With the Innocence Campaign having almost entirely captured the mainstream narrative, Eccles has been free to make several obvious and unchallenged lies about the case in many of his media interviews. Amongst Eccles' most notable lies are his claim in 2010 that he did not live in West Memphis at the time of the murders. As established at the trial, on May 5, 1993, Eccles actually lived at the Broadway Trailer Park in West Memphis, about two miles from the murder scene. Eccles has also stated on several occasions since his release that he hardly ever visited West Memphis and was not familiar with Robin Hood Hills, where the murders occurred. This is hard to square with the fact that he had once lived in the Mayfair Apartments, which overlooked the area. The apartments were so close to the murder scene that the crime scene tape was just yards from their front entrance. In the 1992-93 timeframe, Eccles would often be seen walking around the area of Robin Hood Hills, and even stated so himself at his trial in 1994. His later attempts to distance himself from the crime scene are part of a wider attempt to rewrite the history of his involvement, something the films, especially the Eccles-produced West of Memphis, have allowed him to do with impunity. By far, the most egregious misrepresentation in Paradise Lost and its sequels concern Jesse Miss Kelly's confessions. If the films are to be believed, Miss Kelly was a man with a very low IQ who was interrogated without representation for 12 hours until he broke down and falsely confessed to the murders. The first misrepresentation concerns Miss Kelly's IQ. It suited the defense case to portray Miss Kelly as borderline retarded as it reinforced the narrative that he had been bullied into confessing by the police 
and his statements could not be trusted. Undoubtedly, Miss Kelly did have quite a low IQ. He scored between 70 and 80 in various tests he was given. However, Miss Kelly was told by his lawyers a low IQ score would reduce the chance of him getting the death penalty. There is some evidence that his tests show signs of malingering or deliberately acting dumb to try and achieve a low score. Regardless of what his IQ tests say, Miss Kelly was a functional adult. He was literate, held down jobs, and had relationships with women. He operated at the level of millions of other Americans who managed to lead normal lives without being particularly smart. He even enrolled in college after his release. He was certainly not the gullible, mentally retarded man-child he was often depicted as by Innocence campaigners. The key aspect of the false confession narrative advocated by Paradise Lost is that Miss Kelly was interrogated for 12 hours, without his parents' permission or the presence of a lawyer. Even a cursory study of the police records shows this to be untrue. In actual fact, Miss Kelly was first contacted by the police as a witness. Sergeant Mike Allen talked to Miss Kelly's father on the morning of the 3rd of June about interviewing Jesse. His father agreed and went and fetched his son, who was then driven to the police station by Allen. His father knew what was happening with his son at all times. He even went to the station mid-morning to sign a permission form to allow Miss Kelly to be administered a polygraph test. Miss Kelly failed the test. It is often claimed by Innocence advocates that Jesse Miss Kelly was not read his Miranda rights or did not understand his rights during his interview. This claim has been made so many times that it has become kind of an article of faith, despite the fact that it is entirely untrue. The tapes and transcripts of the interview, as well as two initialed forms, clearly reveal that Miss Kelly has actually read his rights on multiple occasions during the June 3rd interview. Miss Kelly also fully understood what his rights were. He had had numerous prior encounters with law enforcement, and he had read and signed Miranda waivers on at least four occasions before. The transcript also reveals that Miss Kelly was offered and turned down the opportunity to have a lawyer during his interview. Miss Kelly arrived at the police station at about 10 p.m. He confessed to the crime at 2.20 p.m. Only a few hours of this four and a half hours actually consisted of interviews. There never was a 12-hour interrogation. It is an invention of the Innocence Campaign and Paradise Lost. False confessions are quite well understood in criminology. They happen under situations of intense stress and pressure and are almost immediately retracted when the suspect is released from the pressure of the interrogation. Miss Kelly does not fit this pattern at all. After his June 3rd confession, he makes numerous other confessions. Eight days later, Miss Kelly confesses again, in private, to his own defense lawyers Dan Stidham and Greg Crow. In further prison interviews with Stidham in February 1994, Miss Kelly confesses again, on an occasion with his hand on a Bible. After his conviction in February, Miss Kelly again admits he committed the crime to two police officers transporting him to prison. Then, in an extraordinary tape-recorded conversation with his attorneys on February 17th, Miss Kelly stridently reaffirms his guilt, as Stidham and Crow can be heard pleading with him not to. He is then interviewed by the prosecution team, where he gives a long and detailed account of how he, Baldwin, and Eccles 
murdered the boys. Paradise Lost and West of Memphis failed to mention the 17th February Confession or the many other confessions Miss Kelly made. They don't fit the narrative of a mentally inadequate man being coerced into confessing by vicious police bullying. No explanation has ever been given as to how a man who apparently is coerced into falsely confessing is also able to confidently and defiantly resist the coercion of his own lawyers not to confess. Some evidence exists to suggest Miss Kelly confessed even before police first talked to him. A friend of Jesse Miss Kelly named Buddy Lucas told police that on May 6th Miss Kelly told him he was present when the boys were murdered. Lucas stated that Miss Kelly broke down and cried whilst talking to him. Numerous other witnesses, including Miss Kelly's father's girlfriend, reported similar uncharacteristic crying fits from the teenager in the days following the murders. Although less central to the case, there were also some accounts of confessions to the crimes from Eccles and Baldwin. Two peripheral friends of the boys, William Winford and Ken Watkins, both reported to police that they had heard Eccles claim responsibility for the murders. A group of girls at a softball game also reported hearing Damian Eccles brag about the crimes. Eccles denied making the statement at trial and innocence campaigners have long rubbished the girls' testimony. However, in later years, Eccles admitted he did brag about killing the boys at the softball game, but stated he probably said it as a joke. It is often claimed that no physical evidence connects the West Memphis Three to the murder of the boys at Robin Hood Hills. However, a knife found in the lake behind Jason Baldwin's trailer provided a solid if not entirely undisputed link between the teenager and the crimes. In November 1993, while the suspects were awaiting trial, West Memphis police began a search for evidence relating to the crime and quickly focused in on a large area of water behind the trailer park where Jason Baldwin lived at the time of the murders. This looked a likely place where possible murder weapons may have been disposed. Police divers found various items in the lake, including footwear and a jacket. Amongst the items was a large survival-type knife with a serrated edge and a circular opening in the base of the handle that had once held a screw and compass. Police believe the saw-like serrated edge of the knife matched some of the regularly spaced, incised wounds observed on the bodies of Chris Byers and Stephen Branch. At the trial, prosecution lawyers famously attempted to demonstrate how this knife could have made the wounds by using it on a grapefruit. The prosecution also called witnesses who claimed to have seen the knife in Jason Baldwin's trailer around the time of the murders. Deanna Holcomb, Damian Eccles' ex-girlfriend, also told the court that she had previously seen Eccles with a similar knife. The defense team and innocence advocates have tried to counter the knife evidence in various ways over the years. They've dismissed the knife-like marks on the boys' bodies as teeth marks or animal predation. Paradise Lost 2 tries to argue some of the wounds were human bite marks and insinuates they were made by John Mark Byers, whose eccentric behavior and recent dental surgery had caused rumors to spread in the local community that he may have been involved in the murders. More recently, two forensic dentists have re-examined autopsy photos of the wounds and dismissed the bite mark thesis. Homer Campbell and Peter Loomis are both specialists in tool and bite mark identification, 
who have given expert testimony in several court cases over the years. They both believe the wounds to the boys were produced by the so-called lake knife. I believe the injuries to the left forehead and upper lid of the left eye were produced by the knife recovered or one similar. I also sent the photos of the injuries and the knife to another for evaluation and he agrees," Campbell stated. Loomis measured the wounds to Steve Branch's forehead and found they corresponded exactly to the dimensions of the knife. The three lacerations under the eyebrow look like they were made by the serrations on the backside of the knife. The lacerations measure 11.2 millimeters between them and the serrated points of the knife vary between 11.1 and 11.4 millimeters. The circular butt of the Baldwin knife, measuring 29.8 millimeters in diameter, also matched almost exactly the 30 millimeter diameter of the circular wound that had been dismissed by the defense as a bite mark. The extraordinary way the size of the wounds precisely matched the dimensions of the knife is striking. Whilst speculation, if this knife had made the injuries to Branch's forehead whilst the compass section was still intact, then the metal pin at the center of the compass would also match exactly the clear X-shaped mark at the center of the wound. The knife is problematic for innocence advocates. It provides a solid forensic link between Jason Baldwin and the fatal wounds to Stephen Branch. But like so much in the crime, this evidence is still far from conclusive and remains heavily disputed. But if a knife almost exactly matching the size and nature of the wounds was found in the water behind Jason Baldwin's trailer entirely by coincidence, and it is unrelated to either the men or the crime, then yet again the West Memphis Three have been extraordinarily unlucky. At the trial, the prosecution presented several pieces of forensic evidence linking the suspects to the crime. The Innocence Campaign and the Paradise Lost Films have rightly pointed out how weak much of the evidence is. The truth is, with the possible exception of the lake knife as discussed, no physical evidence firmly links either the West Memphis Three or any other suspect to the crimes. Attorneys often bemoan the expectation modern juries have for DNA and forensic evidence in murder trials. This expectation has become known as the CSI effect fostered by the widespread use of often exaggerated crime scene forensics in films and television shows. In reality, even today, in an era of extremely sophisticated DNA techniques, very few criminal cases revolve around forensic evidence. One study has only 13% of criminal cases having any kind of forensic evidence at all, and it's estimated that usable DNA evidence is left behind in only 4.5% of homicides. The lack of DNA evidence at the murder site in Robin Hood Hills is sometimes cited as an argument for the boy's innocence, but the truth is the absence of such evidence is much as would be expected, especially so because the boys were killed outdoors. Not only was the crime scene heavily contaminated by searchers and investigators, but the killers also dumped the bodies in water, which washed off any forensic evidence that may have been present. What evidence there was was inadequate, as a serious argument for the men's guilt. Fiber evidence presented by the prosecution was too vague and could have matched almost anyone, not just the suspects. Some of the other evidence used by the prosecution was tendentious at best. Blue candle wax found on one of the victim's clothing was only similar to wax found in Echols' bedroom and could have matched any number of other people who had candles in their home. 
DNA evidence found on Eccles' necklace was consistent with that of Stephen Branch, but also millions of other people. Whilst the frequent claim that Jesse Miss Kelly was coerced into confessing is not supported by the evidence, much of what he says is undermined by its inaccuracy. A large amount of Miss Kelly's confession does not match the known details of the crime, and Paradise Lost and the Innocence Campaign have done a good job in highlighting the manifest inconsistencies in his statements. Whilst he does get some important details correct, there are enough major discrepancies to make it hard to reconcile them with Miss Kelly actually being present during the murders. Several times in his confessions, he states that the victims were tied up with brown rope. This is untrue. They were tied up with their own shoelaces. If Miss Kelly was present, could he really have gotten such a basic detail wrong? The rope statement does sound like someone trying to imagine or guess how the crime was committed rather than having real first-hand knowledge. Miss Kelly almost certainly heard the many rumors about the crimes that were circulating in the area, and this may also have colored his statements. Numerous similar factual discrepancies have been highlighted by Innocence campaigners and are prominently featured in the Paradise Lost films. Miss Kelly tells police that they skipped school that day and killed the boys around noon. They were actually killed in the late evening. He states that he witnessed Baldwin and Eccles rape the boys, but the autopsies showed that never occurred. There are some possible explanations for the inconsistencies in Miss Kelly's statements. By his own admission, he was very drunk during the attacks, and the liquor bottle he says he threw under a bridge was later found by police. He also admits to only being peripherally involved in the murders themselves. It's at least plausible that a combination of intoxication and distance from the acts of murder themselves account for his inaccuracies. We must also bear in mind that Miss Kelly, even if he was involved, was also a witness to a crime. Even genuine eyewitnesses are notoriously unreliable and often give details that prove to be entirely untrue. This is not evidence they did not witness the crime, just that the human memory is faulty and that when people are involved in shocking, chaotic, and confusing events, their recollections of them are often massively out of kilter with what actually happened. The case of the West Memphis Three is a miasma of claim and counterclaim. The murders are still fiercely debated online, largely curated by those who passionately believe in the innocence of the convicted men. The discussion is often bad-tempered with little ground given on either side. There is no doubt that the campaign kicked off by Paradise Lost in 1996 has proven to be one of the most successful in legal history. It's led to the release of the men, created global outrage about their plight, and tainted the community of West Memphis with a lasting shame. This has led to a great deal of resentment in the town about how they may have been depicted in the media. Whether the men are guilty or innocent may never be determined. Perhaps only another confession or the capture of the real killers will settle the matter once and for all. The polarized nature of the debate seems to force us to make a binary choice between two grave injustices. Either three young men lost 18 years of their lives for a crime they didn't commit, or three heinous murderers were unfairly released. Whatever the truth is, there was a real case against them back in 1994, 
regardless of what the makers of Paradise Lost and Damien Eccles would now have us believe. It's just, sometimes, prejudice works both ways. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness and early access to the Weird But True video series. The latest video is Ghost Photos That Defy Explanation. All other Weird But True videos are available for anyone to see on the Weird But True page at WeirdDarkness.com. Patrons also get exclusive content, such as chapters of horror and paranormal audiobooks that I'm narrating as I record them, often weeks or months before they become available to purchase. I'm currently narrating the audiobook The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey. And next, I'll be narrating 20 Commonly Asked Questions About Demons by Daniel C. Opara. You can become a patron right now for just 5 bucks a month at WeirdDarkness.com. And a huge welcome to Evan Jungklaus. He is our newest Weirdo family member. Thank you for becoming a patron, Evan. I appreciate it. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family Facebook group, get stories that I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. And if you want to win some free Weird Darkness merchandise, it's easy to get your name in the random drawing each Monday. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. A new drawing every Monday. And this coming Monday, the winner will receive a Weird Darkness throw pillow. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. And you can drop me a note anytime on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you listen via Apple Podcasts, please leave a rating and review. I might read your comments on the show. Mr. Marbleton said, Great podcast! Please read this, you're cool. <laughs> well, Mr. Marbleton, there you go. Your wish is my command, I just read it. So there you go. David Save from USA said, Wonderful! One of the absolute best podcasts out there. Keep up the great work. And Muriel Keenan said, Love this! I'm a newcomer to the podcast. I love it and it fills my creepy factor. Struggling to catch up, but I'll get there. Keep the pods coming. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Mysterious Haunted Queen Mary was written by Brent Swanser. My Grandma's Poltergeist was written by Russ Wilson and submitted directly to WeirdDarkness.com. The Tragic Murder of Author Helen Bailey was written by Shannon Raphael. And The West Memphis Three, A Deal with the Devil, was posted at The Unredacted. Music in this episode provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, remember, Romans 12, verse 21, do not be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness.